Hey everyone and welcome to Motherkind, the show that's going to help you navigate the massive challenges of life as a modern mother with more community, confidence, clarity and self-awareness. I'm your host Zoe Blasky. I believe the most important and inspiring thing we can do for our children is to become the most empowered, resilient and authentic versions of ourselves and this podcast exists to help you do just that. This week is a returning guest. It is one of our favourites, Dr. Rick Hansen. Dr. Rick is a world-leading psychologist. He is a leading expert on happiness, relationships and motherhood. His first book over 20 years ago was called Mother Nurture, which he wrote after seeing the emotional and physical toll of motherhood on his wife and the lack of support from society and the lack of recognition of the profoundly important job of motherhood. I first spoke to Rick exactly a year ago and his compassionate direct words on how important we are as mothers and yet how undervalued we are had a massive impact on me and I know with you too because it was one of our most popular episodes from last year. So this episode, Rick and I think about our needs as mothers, why it can be so hard as mothers to get our needs met and how to change that. So you're going to learn why you might not think your needs matter or you might have been conditioned to believe your needs don't matter and how to change that and then how to advocate for your needs in your family and why that is actually the most important thing that we can do as mothers. Because when we meet our own needs, it benefits everyone. It really does. We unpacked that with Dr. Rick in the episode. And at the end, we talk about communication within relationships and our families. Dr. Rick shares a communication method to resolve almost any conflict in your family, which I think might be useful. Definitely going to be useful for me. I think you are going to love this episode. And if you haven't listened to my first episode with Dr. Rick, then when you finish this one, do go back and have a listen. It was from the 13th of Jan, 2022. Here's the episode. I hope you love it. Rick, welcome back to the podcast. It's a complete honor to have spoken to you the first time, but to speaking to you again is incredible. So thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me back. That's a vote of confidence. It was actually one of our most popular episodes of the year. I think your message was just so validating for mothers and equally, you know, you offered lots of solutions and ideas. So I'm really excited for the sort of natural progression really from our last conversation, because we talked about how important it is for mothers to look to their relationships and to the one with themselves. And then you've gone and written a whole book about that. So we've got a lot of material and I wanted to start by just reading something that I think sets up far better than I could about relationships. And you say at the start of the book, relationships are usually the most important part of a person's life, but they're often stressful, frustrating, or simply awkward, distant, and lonely. We feel the weight of things unsaid, needs unmet. It's definitely true. Conflicts unresolved. It's easy to feel stuck. But actually, you say new research shows that you can create your relationships every day with the things you do and say, which gives you the ability to start improving them now. You have the power to make all your relationships better just by making simple changes that start inside yourself. 
that's why I wanted to start really. Why does the relationship we have with ourselves matter when we're talking about relationships with others? And to be clear, especially for mothers and thus women or mainly women identified people, I'm not saying in a context in which so many women feel and they're trained to feel overly responsible for their relationships. So to be crystal clear about that, I'm really focused on trying to break the log jams that so often happen in relationships. And I saw so often in my office as a couples counselor, and I lived through sometimes with my wife of now 40 years as we raised two kids to adulthood, you can feel like a log jam. If you try to get other people to change, they're often slow to change or they fight you every step of the way. Meanwhile, what can you do yourself? So that has been my focus, not to feed into the narrative that it's women who are responsible for how relationships turn out. It's to empower everybody, obviously women and mothers included, to take agency, to claim the power they do have with what they think and say each day. That's kind of the context. And for me, it's the origin point. Other people, they often disappoint. We're bit players in their dramas much of the time. They're doing what they're doing because they're having a bad day. Their back hurts. Their kid threw up on them. <laughs> you know, <laughs> They've got the flu. Something is happening. And they're imperfect, right? We're imperfect too. But inside yourself, you're the origin point for how you react to what other people are doing how you perceive it, the meanings you make of it, the plans you make about it, the ways you support yourself, and the ways you help yourself be skillful and clear and find that sweet spot with other people in which you're not becoming a doormat, but you're not coming in guns blazing either. If there's a conflict, for example, you're helping yourself find your own power place, your sweet spot, like I said, where you can be the you know, speak the truth as you see it, but in a way that has the best odds of there being a good result. So for me, anyway, this is the focus. And as someone who felt very buffeted as a kid by my family and pushed around and then dropped into adulthood, feeling really pretty clueless, it's been so helpful for me to realize that there are things you can do. There are skills you can acquire. There are steps you can take that are in your power that will actually make things better. Can you unpack that for us a bit more? Because I think that's such a crucial point around women that do make those changes. And it's so nuanced, I think, because it's almost like, hear what you're saying, which is we are responsible for our interactions with others. And I wouldn't want anyone to hear that we are therefore responsible for the relationship overall. We're responsible for our part, right? Yes. Our part in those interactions. It's like a dance. What they do to the music is what they do. But what you do moment by moment by moment is a lot within your own power. Sometimes we just get so triggered or so swept away or our back is hurting us or something horrible has happened. We're just hijacked. Okay. But much of the time, we actually have a fair amount of range in what we can do. Maybe we'll get into some concrete examples, but for me, it's really important. Like I'm a staunch feminist. My first book was Mother Nurture. It was about how to take care of mothers over the long haul. I'm completely for that. And what I see is that in a classic situation in which you want something from your partner that they're not delivering, what's an effective strategy? 
And the book basically has 50 very specific practices that all feed into that. And the very first one is to be loyal to yourself. It's no accident that that's chapter one. And it's no accident that I would say probably more than men, you know, women tend to not be loyal to themselves. They're loyal to their partner, their children, their friends, their parents. They're not on their own side. And so it's really important to start there, to realize that your needs matter, your experiences matter, your suffering matters, and that it's actually moral to be for yourself. Because as you take care of yourself and fill yourself up, then you have more for others as well. So I could maybe be specific if you want. I don't know if you're willing to talk about your personal life or maybe a hypothetical or somebody told you recently about a situation. How about a practical example? And then we can unpack it. Yeah. I wanted to, before we go there, just unpack that idea of being on our own side, because I think that is so crucial because what I see and what I have experienced in my own personal life is I will abandon my needs in order to essentially keep the peace in the family. So an example will be the other night, I booked a breathwork class, started at 7.30. That is in the middle of bedtime. My husband's like, really? The girls are kicking off. So I'm like, do you know what? I just won't go. And in that moment, I wasn't on my own side. Right. And you just think about that little situation. There's what we can do in situations and then what we can do before situations happen to prevent them. Like, for example, is there a frame of agreement in your marriage, in your family? In other words, is there this general understanding that you and your husband can make agreements with each other and keep them? And then inside that, was there a general agreement that either of you can commit to something in the evening without giving the other person notice? Or is there even an agreement that you're each responsible as co-parents for putting the kids to bed? so that it just doesn't fall on one person as it typically does the mom. So these are things that kind of set up the frame. And then, of course, when it happens, what's your first instinct? For some people, their first instinct is to go to battle with that other person. How dare you tell me I can't go to breathworks? I really want to do this thing. You know, and other people, their first impulse is to knuckle under. And as you said, to sort of not get on their own side. So being mindful of that, is really helpful, of course. And then you're in the negotiation. How do you work it out? So I'm just kind of curious, how did you work it out? What did you do? I didn't go. And to be honest, there was a part of me that didn't really want to go because I was feeling so under the weather. So I was like, okay. I think had I been like, I'm going, I would have just walked out and I have done that. Also, it's interesting what you say, because normally I would have said to Guy during the day, I'm going to go to Breathwork tonight. It's at 7.30. He's like, cool. He would have been absolutely fine. He sort of joins me in the childcare from about five o'clock. So I'm really super lucky for that. But I sort of, it was a last minute decision. It's about seven. I was like, I'm going to go. And everything felt squeezed. So actually that moment didn't create any resentment for me or any residual resentment, because actually I was like, I didn't really, I wasn't like, absolutely gunning to go because I felt quite unwell. But I think it's really interesting what you're talking about. I'm definitely someone who my instinct is to appease the other. Not instinct, my wiring, my programming, my programming from childhood is to please the other. And I think that's so interesting when I was reading your book, thinking about that, about how do I get on my side more? And what would that unlock for me in terms of 
energy and being able to set better boundaries it's about that worth piece isn't it like I am worth sticking with I'm worth not abandoning myself in those moments when someone else is upset with me that's really good and if you'll indulge me I'll just touch on four really specific simple things people can do with that yeah so one is to know what it's like to be loyal to somebody else to be a friend to them to be determined on their behalf what's that feel like Maybe it's your children, maybe it's a friend, maybe it's a colleague or people who are targeted in ways that are unjust in society. You're on their side, you know, you're, you're loyal to them. Maybe in that is even a kind of a moral sense of what's fair. Hey, wait a second here, something's unfair. Okay, know what it's like to be on someone's side. And then imagine what it would be like to bring that same feeling, that same moral perspective, that same emotion, and that same determination to yourself that you would to another person. For many people, it's startling. It's almost like they go from a movie in color, their loyalty to another person, to fuzzy black and white when it comes to themselves. It just doesn't land. And then exploring, wait a second here, why? What is that, you know, is a useful thing for people, first suggestion. Second is to have self-compassion. That's another chapter in the book. But very often, getting on our own side, being for ourselves, starts with a recognition of how it's hard for us, how we're stressed, how we're tired, how we're worn out, how just being a mom is riding a hormonal roller coaster. I have a friend who's pregnant right now, and she's so nauseous and tired, and food is disgusting, and all the rest of it. And then the long haul, the stresses, everything, you know, all of it, it's not that you're not wanting to be a mom. It's just, wow, it's a lot. So you start with that. I start with like, wow, it's not you're getting into a big pity party. You're not wallowing in self-pity, but it's ordinary self-compassion. It's emotional. That's a second thing you can do. A third thing is to address the whole question of principle. In other words, what's fair? You don't need to be a moral philosopher at Cambridge or something to zero in on, wait a minute here, if they matter, why can't I matter as much? I'm not saying I matter more, but why do I just assume somehow I matter less? If they don't owe me that much, why do I feel like I owe them so much? It's just not fair. You can do what I call the friend test. You imagine someone just like you, except that they're not you. What would be fair? and appropriate for them. Work that through in your mind because we often internalize a lot of beliefs about shoulds that then drive us. And really zeroing in, wait a second, maybe someone lied to you. (laughs) You Maybe somebody guilt tripped you when you were younger and you internalized that. And it's just not true. It's not fair. And then the last thing I think is a kind of a muscular feeling where you mobilize and inner strength, maybe recall a time you were strong about something, maybe doing something physical or maybe really enduring something hard where you just feel your own moxie. You feel your own determination. You feel your own strength. And there's a kind of a muscularity in being for yourself, standing up for yourself, claiming that power, you know, feeling grounded. It's not that you're becoming like Arnold Schwarzenegger in The Terminator and you're going to go beat up everybody. It's more like just kaboom. Hey, I'm here. This matters. I'm serious. I mean business. 
and my cause is just. So any one of those four are helpful and all of them together can really help you to be on your own side. That's such good examples. The word that was coming to my mind was just empowerment as you were talking about that. I was like, this is like empowerment, that move to I matter. You mentioned I matter, my needs matter. And you talk about in the book, the first step in getting others to meet your needs is to better respect your own needs. And I think that's so interesting for us to unpack because I think a lot of listeners will be thinking, are you kidding me? I know my own needs. I can't get anyone around me to meet them. So tell us about that. Tell us about why should we start to meet our needs first before asking for others to meet them? Well, first off, the average mom in America certainly is on task about 20 hours a week more than her partner, whether or not she's drawing a paycheck. That's the average. And in families genuinely like my own, where I really did not want to be Fred Flintstone, I did not want to be that guy. That means there are other dads who are even less engaged and the inequities are even greater. I'm a firm believer that fair is fair. Needs do need to be met. I'm really clear about that. I'm just interested in the effective strategy for actually accomplishing that realistically. And it's not necessarily you should wait to ask others to keep their agreements or do reasonable amounts of housework and childcare. Fair is fair. It's not that you should wait for that. It's just meanwhile. Meanwhile, I find a lot of people put themselves in a helpless position or they tolerate a helpless position in which they're, they're complaining appropriately about the lack of good treatment, but that lack of good treatment is continuing. And then meanwhile, they're not doing things they could do to start meeting their own needs better, including in how they talk to themselves inside their own minds or how they carve out little bits of time for themselves, if not larger bits, to just take care of themselves or where they more unilaterally just say, look, this is what I'm going to do. I would add that I know many, many people who... Maybe in in their mind, they feel let down because they have been let down by their partner. It is unfair. There are inequities. And to name a kind of detail here, there are often three kinds of inequities in a family. One is just simply time on task, you know, the time load. And right there, there's usually an inequity. But there's also a second kind, the stress load. Very often in a heterosexual relationship, there's sometimes patterns like this in same-sex relationships in which the man will do low-stress activities like yard work, organizing the garage, and the mom will do high-stress parenting. They're both time on task, but she's doing high-stress stuff like settling sibling quarrels, things like that, or managing a kid to get their hair brushed who just hates having their hair brushed. And then there's the third inequity, which is the executive load. Like the kid is sick. He doesn't really think about it. She's up all night worrying and trying to figure out what to do and how to get better care from the National Health Service you know, for her child who's not doing well or what's going on with the kid's social relationships in third grade that are really awkward. So all those are inequities, to be sure. But what I find often is that people understand that it's unfair, but they're actually not a strong advocate for their own needs inside themselves. They don't believe that they matter equally inside themselves. And I'm a staunch feminist. I'm a staunch advocate for if you want to change the world in a generation, make taking care of mothers our number one world priority. 
hello. <laughs> so you start there. And then on the basis of actually feeling entitled, entitled in a good way, entitled to equity in terms of the stress load and the time load and the executive load, you know, entitled to respect, entitled for having a partner who treats their agreements with you as seriously as they treat their agreements with the neighbor next door or some dude down the hall at work. That sense of healthy entitlement, I actually find in a lot of people, you know, technically people, especially if they're in different groups, can do what's called internalized oppression. They can internalize the way society regards them as not as deserving, not as worthy, not as mattering as much. They're down, you know, it's a tilt against them. They've internalized that. And again, I'm not blaming them for that. I'm just saying the opportunity is to really treat your needs like they seriously matter. And then we're in the process of getting them met more effectively by other people. We can really talk about the practicalities of that. But it starts with feeling like, hey, my needs matter. Absolutely. That has to be the basis, doesn't it, for any change, whether within yourself or that you're going to advocate for within your family. You have got to get to that place where you believe you matter. And if someone is listening, thinking they have internalized those messages of society, so they might think, no, you know, it's right. My husband brings all the money. I'm not bringing any financials. It's right that I do those 20, 40, 60 plus, plus, plus hours extra invisible labor. It's right that I shouldn't get to go out or he should have to do a bath time. He's had a long day at work. You know, if they've all these messages, which I think many of our generation of mothers have internalized, how do you move someone from that place of believing their needs don't matter to the place where we want to get someone to and you want to be, which is that sense of entitlement for worth and fairness and knowing that you do matter. What bridges that gap? There's a joke about therapists. How many therapists does it take to change a light bulb? Only one, but the light bulb has to want to change. It's dumb and profound. A key shift inside the mind of a person is to help yourself, to decide to help yourself to start believing something that 1% of you knows is true and fair and 99% of you still doesn't believe. But what you can do, though, is you can help yourself want to believe it increasingly over time, for example. And that's a key right there, to get on your side enough to help yourself to believe something that initially you don't totally believe. Part one. Part two, and that's very sacred, actually, that moment of existential choice where you get on your side in the innermost temple of your inner being, you know, sanctuary inside. You say, you know, I've listened to Zoe. One percent of me knows this is true. The rest of me, I've, you know, I've just internalized the way I was brought up and what I saw my mother do and her mother before her and all the rest. But, you know, I know there's a different way, and I want to help myself gradually believe it. That's one thing. A second thing you can do about this is to really address the beliefs in a systematic way, like a belief. Okay, he deserves to just have recreational time in the evening while I spend the next four hours from 6 to 10 p.m. managing the family, doing the dishes, and managing the kids while he's, you know, reading detective novels or surfing the internet or watching sports TV. Somehow it's because he makes more money than me. Well, wait a second. Is that actually fair? 
is it actually fair that somehow raising children is less valuable than making money? Also, is his job really that stressful? 98% of the occupations in the world are less stressful than being home alone with young children or managing the day-to-day activities. Research shows just cortisol levels, literally, or you just look at the nature of stressful activities, lack of control, being interrupted a lot about people that you care a lot about, you know, with a lot of intense emotion involved. Most jobs, unless you're some sort of inner city police officer or you're in combat, you know, somewhere in the world, or maybe you're, you know, an emergency room, technician, you know, under tremendous pressure day to day, your job is not as stressful. So right off the top, what you do as a mother matters more in terms of the consequences on precious, vulnerable children than that task at work today. Number one, it matters more. Second, it's more stressful. So if anybody deserves the opportunity to kick back and watch sports TV or whatever your deal is, you know, it's the mom. So working that through, it sounds rational, yeah, but there's a place for you're helping yourself to believe something different. And then when you do believe it, like you listen to, somebody listens to you, let's say, in your wonderful podcast, which I love, actually, you hear something that rings true, slow down and help it sink in. So you develop conviction about it. And I think there's another element here, which is interesting, which is when people start to realize that they've been mistreated including by people they love, including by people who owe them a tremendous duty. My view is that we all owe mothers a profound duty, period. And men in particular who don't have to deal with all that stuff, who contribute one cell, basically, (laughs) biologically, we owe mothers. If anybody is owed, it's the people who are doing all of the bearing and most of the rearing of the most precious, precious, precious things in the world, our innocent, vulnerable children. So we owe that. And then what starts to come up when you start to realize that you've been mistreated is some anger. Anger comes up. And anger can be hard to bear, to process, especially anger at people you love and maybe are dependent on financially and otherwise. And they're your co-parent, right? And maybe your lover often as well to be angry at them. And so sometimes people don't want to get into that anger. So they make themselves keep believing things that are just not fair. And I just want to name it. I really am curious what you would say about this. So this anger that can come up when you start to realize that it's been unfair, you've been taken advantage of, you know, whoever you are, when you realize that. And do people push that anger away by perpetuating the status quo? Or do they let themselves feel the anger, process it in mindful ways, self-compassionate ways, and then use that anger in its function. Careful about the expression of anger. Anger has a lot of consequences when it's expressed. I'm not trying to suppress women who have every right in the world to be angry. I'm just being pragmatic here. On the other hand, anger is very effective at highlighting injustice and energizing and mobilizing people. Quick word from this week's sponsor, Explore Learning. Explore Learning are the leaders in personalized learning. So they help children learn at a pace and level that is unique to them using an adaptive curriculum. 
So like me, Explore Learning believes that every child has a unique, amazing mind. So learning needs to be personalized to them. Now, as we all know, sometimes those unique needs aren't always met in a really busy classroom. And that is where Explore Learning comes in. They use an adaptive curriculum that introduces children to what they need to know when they need to know it. Their tuition, whether online or in centre, is delivered by amazing expert tutors who work really hard to build trusting relationships with the children, which helps engage them in the lessons and helps them get the most from their learning. So if you want to help your child unlock the joy of learning this year, then you can save £50 at Explore Learning from the 14th of Jan to the 25th of Feb. Tuition is available in 95 Ofsted registered vibrant learning centres throughout the UK or online at explorelearning.co.uk. That's explorelearning.co.uk. Someone said to me on the podcast, I can't remember who, anger is the emotion of self-worth, that there's a bit of self-worth in anger, like I have been wronged. And there's an esteem in that. There's an esteem in that. So I think that's what came up to me when you first said that and I think in terms of what we do with that anger I think it's so complex depending on the level of a support system around a mother I think if you had someone to process that anger with you know a friend who was able to hold that space for you without fixing you and going yeah getting into it you know not healthy or if you were lucky enough to have maybe a coach or a therapist or even if you had a journaling practice I think if you didn't have any of that I think it would be really hard to process. Obviously, life doesn't stop, does it? You're still, as you say, doing those extra 20, 40, 60 hours. You've still got all that cortisol in your body, all that stress in your body, because the job is still there of raising children or working and raising children. And I think the other thing that comes up for me is I think it depends on your partner's reaction. Because I think if there's a partner and you bring this to them and they go, what's the problem? I'm earning the money. Be quiet type thing that would be a very different approach you would then take as opposed to a partner who was like I hear you I didn't see this before let's talk about this very different and sometimes people have to end up with faithful choices with children and sometimes quietly they just think well it's not so bad that I just have to leave but I'm going to really reevaluate when the kids go off to X when they leave home, right? I mean, sometimes that happens. My personal experience is that in a family setting, occasionally there will be a partner who is just absolutely unbudgeable. They're set in their ways and they will actually punish. They'll try to punish their partner for bringing things up. There's some people like that. But generally, my personal experience is that if the partner with a grievance, let's say it's the mother here, if she stays with it and finds support from others, we haven't mentioned that yet. I mean, there's a community of support in your podcast. You know, I have an online community as well. And, you know, you can find support there and just friends and other people you can talk with who support you and help you realize, you know, that, yeah, you do matter and you're right. And he is not carrying his load. When you have that, and if you stick with it, and I can maybe, I can tell you three things that I've seen that are very practical in terms of dealing with this inequity issue, which is 
really pervasive. There's a reason why the average is 20 hours a week, you know, because it's very common that very often the guy will budge. Very often there will be a budge. It won't necessarily be as much as you would really want, but it's definitely a major improvement. If you want, I can talk with you about some of the practical things I cover in the book about that. Definitely. Yeah. First, know what the facts are. Studies show that on average, in a heterosexual relationship that's raising children, men are doing more than their wives think they are, and the men are doing less than they think they are. So pin it down. What are the facts? And quietly, I've known a number of mothers who followed my advice that for a week, without changing anything and being very accurate, track his time and your time by the quarter hour every day in terms of what's actually happening in terms of major categories. So how much time is actually being spent on the job, including commute or getting dressed in the morning? And how much time is being spent on personal recreation? How much time is being spent doing household tasks of different kinds, maybe break them up a little bit or not? And then how much time is spent being directly involved with the children or managing? things around the children, like arranging a play date with another parent, say, and just track the facts. Very often when you track the facts, it's extremely eye-opening and it's factual. It's very factual. Basically, when you sum it across the week, and by the way, a simple way to do this is to create a little spreadsheet like Excel or Google Sheet or something in which every column is a particular task. And then every 15 minutes from the time you wake up to the time you go to sleep, you know, is broken down. And then you just fill in the little cell, you know, you shade it in for the time spent. The system should take no more than five minutes a day. If it's taking you more than five minutes a day to track the time, it's too much. But just track the time. People think that's weird. I don't know. If you do it, I've always found it to be amazingly powerful because it always surfaces some fundamental difference. So now you have the facts. Second, it's often useful to be clear about the values and to really ask the partner, let's say a heterosexual relationship. So, man, what do you think is fair? Do you think that we should be on task roughly equally every week? Maybe the tasks are different. Maybe I'm managing the kids while you go to work, but we're both on task during that time. Do you think in general that it's fair for us to be each spending about the same amount of time on task. Most men these days would have a hard time saying no because they know instantly they're a Neanderthal if they say it. And deep down, you know, hopefully they love you. They want to be fair. You know, appeals to fairness are pretty central in male socialization. Being a good sport, being fair, even if you lose, you're fair about it. And then in that frame, you present the facts. Well, we're not actually doing it that way. I tracked our time over the last week, and this is what I found. Not as an accusation, but as a factual statement. I've known multiple couples that have revolutionized their relationship on that basis because you just start staring at it. And there are a lot of people, men included, who slip into old patterns because they're easy and they know inside themselves, well, I'm, I'm more engaged than my dad sure was. But deep down, when they're faced with the evidence and they really see it adding up, you know, an hour or two here in the evening and the morning, 
and then a few hours each day on the weekend, it really can end up to 10 to 20 hours a week. And they realize it's not fair and they don't want to do that. They don't want to be that guy. They want to also have their partner not be on their case. Do not underestimate the motivation of wanting to get your partner off your case legitimately because she's on your case for a good reason. And then you have a conversation, you start making agreements, you start finding arrangements. There are ways to do this in a way that's kind while still being really quite clear and serious along the way that are really quite effective. And then you make arrangements. That's what my wife and I did. We started to realize, oh, we had to make time agreements and we made arrangements. And then when you're off the clock, you really feel like you're off the clock. You have what in Buddhist tradition is called the bliss of blamelessness. And that's a nice thing to have. I mean, for me as a husband, actually, I wanted to get an A because I always want to get an A in everything. I was like, I, I want to be the impeccable husband. You know, I don't need to be perfect, but I want to be kind of impeccable. And I want to remove cause for complaint one by one because that's the best way to have harmony in my relationship and low stress in my life and to feel good about myself. A thing that helped me as well is to realize that there are these things called relationship tasks. When our kids were little, I was doing diapers. I was making money. I was going to grad school, but my wife was still unhappy with me. And I came across this phrase, relationship tasks in grad school. And I realized, oh, part of my husband, father job description is relationship tasks, where I just sit with her and ask her how she's doing and pay attention to the freaking answers. (laughs) You know, like, oh, and I'm good with, you know, a to-do list. I'm like to-do list kind of person. So it may sound mechanistic. I don't mean it that way. It was from my heart. I just realized, oh, I just had to include these other things. It's like, do your job. That's the frame. What do you make of all that? A couple of things, just to pick up on that last point you were talking about relationship tasks. I think that is one of the biggest blockers as I see, particularly in the world that we live in today, where, you know, there's more dual working families than ever before. We're so distracted on our devices. There's so much content. Everything moves so fast. You know, and I fall into this sometimes in my own relationship that either guys with the kids or doing some sort of domestic labor or I'm with the kids or doing some, or we're doing stuff for ourselves. So like I'm reading or he's watching TV or I might be doing whatever and he's doing something. It's really hard to prioritize that just chatting, chilling, connecting time when it feels like there's always, like you said, that to-do list, so much other more valuable stuff to do. That's true. And it goes both ways. I just want to underline kind of the thing I said here about, I think there's this middle place between helpless sputtering and enraged scorched earth. There's this middle place where you take your time to really be clear about the facts to be really also clear about the principles and to be clear about your plan. And you may do that internally initially. You gather your forces. And then on the basis of that, you sustain, you stay with it. I've seen a lot of people, they'll do one or two rounds with their partner and then they'll just throw up their hands like, this is too hard. No, you sustain it. We've done that, like date nights. We need to do date nights and then we'll do it. And then we sort of just let it pale away again. Yeah. Sometimes you discover that your partner is just totally stuck, unfortunately, and then you've got a fateful choice to make. Very often, though, if you just stick with it, you really can get some serious change going on. Absolutely. And then relationship tasks. The other side of it, 
You know, very often is that typically when kids come along, I'll put it in heterosexual terms here, the mom increasingly feels let down around both teamwork and parenting from the same page. He feels let down in terms of intimate friendship, not just sex, but the whole kind of space. He feels like she looks at him as sort of a means to the end of just kind of managing the mommy baby unit, uh, the mommy kid unit. And both people feel sort of let down. And unfortunately, then a vicious cycle ensues. She's upset with him because he's not pulling his weight because he's not. So she withdraws emotionally and erotically. He feels sort of abandoned, like, hey, where'd my lover go? You know, I didn't marry a mom. Then he steps even further out, not blaming her. I'm just saying, I'm just describing kind of objectively a vicious cycle. And things can happen in the first five, 10 years that totally scorch a relationship. It may take another five to 10 years before they see divorce lawyers, but it all started with that one fight they had after the kid's birthday party or something like that, you know, when the kid was three years old. So for me, I'm pragmatic and I look on both sides of it. You know, how can we improve the teamwork side and how can we improve the intimate friendship side for everybody? One thing that really helps is making vulnerable requests, you know, sharing your experience without a demand in it and without blame in it. Just what's it like to be you in a vulnerable, honest, revealed way? That takes a lot of bravery, a lot of courage. And obviously, it's important for people to listen. But often when we slow it down and we don't blame, but we do name how it is for us, it has a lot of authority, has a lot of weight to it. Not everybody perfectly, but a lot of people show up for it. So that's important. And then the flip side of it is to be willing to make a vulnerable request that's unmistakable. And so you risk them letting you down because now you both know what the agreement is. A lot of times people sugarcoat what they really want or they use euphemisms because they're so scared of really just putting it on the table because what if he doesn't do it? But then you don't get your needs met if you don't put it on the table. What would an example of a vulnerable request be? A couple hours ago, due to the launch of my book that came out today, January 17th, you know, I did an event and a, and a woman brought up a situation in which her husband is a computer consultant and they've been married for 30 years. He works at home. She's at home too. And she's a therapist and she's working on the computer, trying to manage this or that. And she doesn't understand something or it isn't working right. And he then gets frustrated with her and very short and kind of angry in his tone. It's not dishes aren't being broken on the floor, you know, but it's still intense and unpleasant. So hypothetically, a vulnerable request would be something like, you know, Bob, when you say this word and that word to me, and when your tone is really kind of angry, honestly, I feel really small inside. I feel scared. I feel just suddenly I'm with my stepfather all over again. You know, I, I feel like stupid. I don't have a feeling in the moment that you love me. And in all that, so I just request that if I tell you about a computer problem or I don't seem to understand something that you as a super expert immediately understands, my request is that you just slow down a little bit and tell me what I need to know with at least neutral tone and even better, a kind of encouraging or understanding tone. And maybe there's something I could do that would help you do that for me 
and I'm all ears. I'd love to know that. But my kind of request going forward, you know, whatever's been true in the past is that when I do have a computer issue, that you don't get so angry with me about it. What do you think? You know, I notice about that is how many I statements there were and how I didn't feel like if I'm imagining being him, as you were saying that to me, I didn't feel attacked. I didn't feel any shame. I didn't feel any guilt. I didn't feel like I was being accused of something. I actually felt loads of compassion as you were saying that for the lady. Yeah. Well, that's very sweet. That's very good about you, Zoe, too, that you're so empathic. You could put yourself in his shoes just right there. But yeah, and it's important to do it your own way, whoever you are. You know, I'm a therapist. I live in California. I have a certain style, you know, but you find your own style. The basic structure is contained also in what's called nonviolent communication that you've probably heard about. When X happens, I feel Y because I need Z. That's the basic form. And then sometimes on the heels of that comes, so from now on, I request such and such. That structure is a good structure. If everything's going fine, we don't need to follow good form. But if it's awkward or tense, that form is really useful. And it was implicit in what I had to say. I didn't name the needs part. I could have named the needs part. But I just did the basically when this happens, described objectively, I feel this and that. It has a lot of weight. I did it recently, actually, and it's just reminded me of how different an experience it was. We're having this house renovation that I mentioned to you, and the builders asked me to order something, and I made a mistake, and I had to go and tell them. And I was feeling like increasingly embarrassed that I'd done this wrong. And normally what I would do is sort of make an excuse to Guy. Like, yes, but the kids were with me and I was trying to order it and that, you know, which was all true. I did something different. And I said to Guy, would you just come upstairs with me and tell the bill? I mean, the builders are lovely guys. Don't get me wrong, but I just felt, felt embarrassed. I said, would you come and support me as I tell the builders that I've got this thing wrong? Because I feel really embarrassed that I've made this mistake and it makes me feel stupid and it makes me feel like the men around me know better it triggers that I think it was that vulnerability because guy was like I had no idea you felt like that and of course I'll come and support you whereas in the past I definitely would have just been so angry you know at myself but then put it out onto you know and I probably would have been like you should have ordered it anyway because you know I'm too busy with the kid you know (laughs) oh yeah yeah preemptive strike right exactly lob a bit of blame in but I think it was the vulnerability it's so true like the vulnerability is just such a connector did you also feel somehow in that vulnerability a kind of strength and dignity I felt like it was different and I felt proud and I felt compassionate to myself actually Yeah, I did feel compassionate to myself. I was like, this is a tiny mistake. I always go to, you're stupid. I always go to, you're stupid. I was like, you're not stupid because you made this mistake. And yeah, I think just bringing Guy into that internal world that I was experiencing, even though I was sort of embarrassed that I was embarrassed, because I like to put across the world of this, like, you know, empowered, strong, (laughs) you know, and I was embarrassed that I was feeling so sort of nervous and embarrassed about having to go up and be like, I've done this wrong and this is going to impact us how. And I'm, you know, it just reminded me, actually, it reminded me 
and you've reminded me tonight of the power of owning using those I statements rather than those blaming like you statements. The thing I want to underline in what you said is that I think often people think that vulnerability is weakness. Actually, it's strength. It's like you're standing tall with your heart open, with the courage and self-respect. You're kind of reporting out. You're naming your experience. And ideally, you're not just reporting on it kind of remotely, like sending a message from, you know, a thousand miles away. You're feeling it while you say it in relationship with another person. And in that is a lot of strength. And I think sometimes when they are vulnerable, they add an apology. They're apologetic somehow about it, or they're trying to appease others. I think there's a place to encourage yourself to stand tall when you're speaking the truth of your own experience, which has an undeniable validity. And don't justify it. Don't apologize for it. There might be a little bit of explanation psychologically. Like I grew up in a home with loving but fault-finding parents who were very controlling. So, you know, I can acknowledge sometimes that when people are at all critical, that it just stirs up a reaction inside me that's out of proportion to what really happened. It's bigger than what really happened. I'm not blaming them if I'm acknowledging that. I'm not apologizing or, you know, defending myself. I'm just explaining why my mind, you know, reacts in the ways that it does. Anyway, I just want to really emphasize the possibility that being vulnerable can be the strongest move of all, especially if you bring a kind of self-respect with it. Do we have to think about the safety with which we open our hearts and be vulnerable like I felt safe to say all that to Guy because I knew that he wouldn't shame me I knew he wouldn't laugh at me I knew he wouldn't build on that embarrassment by going you got it wrong like I knew that he wouldn't do any of that but I'm guessing well I know there are partners out there who might have done that so how do we get that line right around safety within our own vulnerability Well, part one, I think it's important to see what you're dealing with. And obviously, and sadly, domestic abuse of different kinds is quite common. And it crosses all classes and socioeconomic groups. And so obviously paying attention to that. So let's just assume that's not the case. And what there might be, though, is the other person being critical, let's say, or taking that vulnerability as a bid for closeness, because it is self-disclosure you know, it tends to increase closeness. And sometimes other people don't want to get closer for all their various emotional reasons and their whole history. Maybe their attachment style is avoidant and sets up a pursuer, distancer dynamic. You know, they distance. So whatever, they might do that sort of stuff. I would say two things about it. The first, this way of speaking that we're talking about here, where you're speaking for yourself, you're reporting the truth of your own experience, which has validity in its own right. No one has to agree with it for it to be valid in that you are feeling a certain way. You are feeling a certain way. What other people do is kind of almost irrelevant. You kind of hope they will respond well, but you don't make your communication contingent on the kind of response you're going to get from the other person. That's a radical liberating step 
for people. I don't mean being stupid or naive about the impact on others or being intelligent in a long relationship, how you're trying to influence things. But I think very often, and women in particular are socialized to be this way, people can become what's called other-directed or they can move what's called the locus of control out into other people and become excessively caught up in, here's another psych term, being object referenced, where they're referencing continually the anticipated reaction to them. And they're trying to manage that anticipated reaction and playing it out on their mind in different ways to an excessive degree, to a degree that binds them up in chains and muzzles them from speaking their truth. And especially in a relationship, I'm not talking about spilling your guts at work, but in a marriage, in a long-term relationship, a good friend, someone that you feel you, you've created some space to be real with. We're talking about authenticity and genuineness here and not being so bottled up or inhibited or caught up in managing the reactions that other people have to you. There's a beautiful freedom in resting in that place, and which requires, like we said at the start, being on your own side, you know, kind of being loyal to you. And then obviously, if other people do react as they do, then over time, you start to talk about that. And then you maybe start making agreements about that. Let's say the third time you get a little teary, maybe with a partner. And for the third time in a row, the partner gets kind of impatient with you and starts trying to fix it. Not uncommon. Maybe, you know, after you notice a pattern, you start seeing it a few times, you say, hey, I just want to let you know, if I get teary, I'm okay with that. I can manage it myself. It's not a claim on you that I'm teary. I'm not, you know, asking you to fix anything. And in fact, I prefer you not getting into fix-it mode with me, but rather just sort of staying with listening and trying to find out. I know you love me and you want to help me. And it creates a kind of urgency inside you, I imagine to make it better. And maybe, you know, it, you're feeling a little stirred up inside yourself. So you try to manage getting stirred up inside yourself by getting me to be quieter or to solve my problem. That's you trying to solve your internal issue with getting stirred up by making me not be teary. What's with that? <laughs> what can we do you know, for the better going forward? I love how we've gone full circle as well. We started with the idea of being with ourselves and, and we've talked so much around you know needs and boundaries and then we sort of ended up back in that same place which is just so beautiful isn't it and then and it's where the book starts which is all about that relationship with ourselves like being the foundation it's beautiful so tell us where people can find more about you and specifically the book that's easy just use my name just Google it or something, Rick Hansen, son.net, take you to my website. The book's available everywhere and it's published in the UK as well and also in other languages. And so I think that just from a moral standpoint almost, boy, in our times today, we're both more connected with other people and we're also more distant, more divided. It's this weird time and learning how to claim the power that we do have to make our relationships better and to stick with it will make the world better over time. You know, I've been involved recently with founding the Global Compassion Coalition, this idea of a worldwide coalition of people who are organized around relieving suffering and changing its systemic causes by, over time, becoming big enough to be strong enough 
to really produce the common good, the greater good for all of us, not just for some of us, based on how the world is operating today. So that's an example of people coming together at scale and learning how to make better relationships with everyone. So for me, there's something that we we do it for ourselves when we make our relationships better, but we do it for the other people involved and we do it for the whole world when we make our relationships better. And if I could say, I think so many people, me included, certainly in my history, are living inside the bars of an invisible cage. We're just assuming that certain things cannot be said or asked for and or interacted around. To me, there's something very fundamental about becoming more fully expressed and more fully aware of the depths of your own experiences and more real with other people, especially important people like the person you're raising a family with potentially, even if you're separated from each other. Uh, You're still co-parenting in some ways, hopefully, in this way, by speaking from the heart, by being real about more and more of what it's like to be us, being open and inviting other people to be real about what it's like to be them, and to expand the space or the bounds in the relationship of what we can talk about and negotiate, right? Negotiation is real. How we can sort things out and problem solved together rather than just putting up with things and trying to make the peace today. You know, there's a lot of room most people have and most relationships have to push those invisible bars in which they're huddled down farther and farther away day after day. And as you do that, you discover who other people are. We don't really know until we try, until we try repeatedly, typically. And sometimes people are revealed to be a serious problem. One of my chapters is titled, Resize the Relationship. Sometimes you have to resize the relationship, which might include ending it entirely. Very often it means shrinking it or bounding it in some ways over time. But very often, if you just stick with it, people reveal themselves to be interested in pushing their own invisible bars back further and creating more and more of a space in which you can connect with each other for the sake of your precious children and the greater good of humanity altogether. I had an experience of that today where I had to have a hard conversation and that is another chapter which is brilliant. We haven't got time to go into it, but it's a brilliant chapter in the book about hard conversations. Had to have one today. And I feel like with hard conversations, people really reveal who they are. And I had this hard conversation and I I had prepped for it and I thought about what she might need as I sort of give this news and And she just handled it with so much grace and so much kindness and so much compassion. My respect for her just quadrupled. It was just incredible. And I hear that theory a lot, you know, hard conversations bring you closer to people. But I really had that experience just this morning. It was beautiful. It really, really was. And I think had I shied away from that, I wouldn't have had the opportunity of that experience. That's very sweet. I mean, doing it is kind of thrilling. Like I was totally bottled up, you know, when I landed in college and then adulthood, it starts to feel thrilling to be just one step more real and then see what happens. It is. It's almost addictive. (laughs) It's like, right, where's the next hard conversation, the next, you know, truth that I'm going to, I'm going to share. This has been such, uh, I mean, I knew it would be and you know, Rick, you just bring such a depth of knowledge and wisdom, but also just such practical tools. I think that's why I just love you so much is that you're so deep and practical. And that's quite rare, I think. 
So thank you. And, and as you know, I always ask the same question at the end, which is if you could give any gift to all the mothers in the world, what would that one gift be and why? Externally, I would give them the gift of organizing the world around their welfare. I mean, if I could wave a wand, I would do that. I'll answer a slightly different question. If you were, what, ruler of the world, or if you had magical powers, if you got one wish, uh, what would it be? I would organize humanity, the whole human tribe. I would organize the whole human tribe, all 8 billion of us, around the welfare of mothers for a generation, and then take a fresh look in 25 years. So I would do that for sure. I don't have that magic wand, unfortunately. If I could offer something more specific, it would be the gift of taking at least a few minutes every day of entirely and only nurturing yourself. And it's actually scientifically remarkable that even just like three to five minutes of kind of marinating, I call it the deep green zone, red zone, you know, deep green, where you just completely let go of solving problems, worrying, planning, you totally let go of that. And you just find your way down as deeply as you can into a place inside that's completely rested and feels safe enough in the present. Oh, peaceful. And also with a warm heartedness, with an open heart, just resting in the heart, really peaceful, fundamentally content in the present for a few minutes. That's incredibly restorative, including biologically. So I would wish for that, that every mother would find or take those few minutes every day to rest, to come to complete rest inside herself in a way that feels good for her. You know, I was thinking as you were saying that, I was like, maybe you and I need to do a meditation series. It's almost like your voice is so hypnotic. I was getting to that place within myself. Yeah, on my website, you'll find really short practices. I have this thing called Just One Minute. There are about 55 of them. They're little practices that are internal, that are all under two minutes that you can do. And We'll link to those one minute. People are going to love those. (laughs) Oh, thank you so much. It's been an absolute joy. Oh, for me as well. And I really appreciate you. And I don't know if you're going to include this in, in the recording, but I can just say your husband is a lucky, fortunate fellow. Thank you. I will make him listen to this. (laughs) No, you're just awesome. Thank you. So that was the episode. I hope that you really enjoyed it. As ever, if you did, please consider sharing it with your friends and leaving me a review on iTunes. It really does make a difference to the number of mums that we can reach with the brilliant wisdom of the guests I have on. Hi, I'm Lauren. And I'm Nicole. And if you enjoy this show, you will love our podcast, Self Care Club. Every week, we trial a different form of self care and report back on the results. We've tried everything from cuddle therapy, setting boundaries, laughter yoga, and many more. Two friends who rarely agree on anything, testing out the world of self care so you don't have to. We've even written a book dedicated to self care practices that cost you nothing. You can listen to Self Care Club wherever you get your podcasts. Or to purchase our book, search Have You Tried This on Amazon.